0: Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 56, The Tea Master. For the next few weeks, I want to move things along a more culturally oriented bent, and away from the high politics I usually focus on. Complimenting that, this week I want to talk about a man who has, in many ways, become identified with the flowering of culture during the late Sengoku, and what is known as the Azuchi Momoyama period. He's a tremendous cultural figure, with some surprising cultural ties as well. I'm talking, of course, about Sen no Rikyu. Sen no Riku was born in 1522 in Sakai, the trading city that forms the nucleus of what is now Osaka. The city has always been a trade hub, even during the time of the Sengoku. It was dominated by merchants, and that was Rikyu's background. His father operated a warehouse along the wharves of Sakai. This makes him a merchant by birth, and thus puts him on the lower end of the social strata. Now, note the birth year, 1522. That's about smack in the middle of the Sengoku period. The country has already been at war for 60 years, and the fighting will continue for another 60-odd yet. As you might expect, this did restrict trade to a large degree. The wars between the various domains did inhibit the free flow of trade, and after the wars ended, trade would in turn revive to a large degree. However, the merchant class still did fairly well out of the Sengoku. The domain lords had to convert their wealth, in the form of rice extracted from their lands, into gold and silver they could use to pay their armies in order to stay secure. The merchant class provided that service and did fairly well out of the deal. Sennoriku's parents were apparently of this class of merchant because they were pretty well off. At the very least, they were wealthy enough that they could afford an education for their son and hired tutors to teach him how to read, how to write, and to give him a basic education on the Chinese classics, as well as a degree of cultural education. This last bit, the cultural education, would become what defined his life. You see, competition in the Sengoku period was not simply military. The domains also competed for what we would call prestige. Lords would build large temples or large palaces, or construct public works projects or found new cities designed to attract trade. The goal for all these projects, generally speaking, was to widen the influence of that domain, and thus the lord of said domain, by means cultural or economic, strengthening their hand against their neighbors. In the dog-eat-dog world of the Sengoku, lords fought for influence wherever they could get it, and for even the smallest advantage. The effect, in many ways, was a lot like the cultural renaissance that hit the Holy Roman Empire in the 1600s and 1700s. As the authority of the Holy Roman Emperor, who ruled over what we would consider roughly Germany, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Poland, began to decline the princes of the empire began competing more directly with each other. They spent tremendous amounts of money trying to outdo each other in every sphere of society, and the result was a cultural renaissance that brought Europe Bach, Beethoven, the Baroque movement, and many other cultural phenomena that continue to influence high European culture to this day. A similar pattern was at work in Japan. The tremendous resources poured into the cultural sphere by competing daimyo would create a cultural renaissance that arguably was exceeded only by the one that saw the arrival of Chinese culture. So what was the high culture that this renaissance created? Well, at the time, there was still only one place to look for high culture. China. At the time, China was ruled by the massive Ming dynasty, its penultimate imperial house. The Ming are generally thought of in the cultural sense as the last great golden age of China. This isn't entirely fair to their successors in the Qing dynasty which would come to power in 1644, but the Ming were definitely a cultural powerhouse. Cultural forms from music to architecture were brought over from the mainland, and lords trained up cores of cultural figures to surround them with borrowed prestige. Again, a parallel can be drawn to Europe in the Enlightenment, when the dueling leaders of states like Sweden, England, or France competed not only for military glory, but for cultural prestige and surrounded themselves with scientific and cultural figures like Rene Descartes, Isaac Newton, and so on. For our purposes, the most important of these forms to experience a revival was the tea ceremony. Tea has a long association with Buddhism in East Asia. One exceptionally improbable legend traces the origin of the first tea plants to the Buddhist monk Bodhidharma, who is generally credited as the man who brought Chan, or Zen Buddhism, to China. The story goes that Bodhidharma, after being denied entrance to a Chinese monastery, which would eventually become the famous Shaolin Temple, went to a nearby cave and spent nine years staring at a wall meditating. Seven years in, he fell asleep and, enraged at himself for doing so, cut off his own eyelids so it could not happen again. From said eyelids sprang forth the first tea plants. This is obviously not true, But, as with all such stories, it has an element of truth. In this case, tea was often used by Zen monks as a stimulant to keep them awake during long hours of meditation. However, tea drinking spread beyond the Buddhist establishment pretty quickly. By the 800s, the writer Lu Yu produced the classic Cha Jing, or Cha Kyo in Japanese, the classic of tea, which kicked off something of a popular culture tea craze in China. At the same time, a Japanese monk named Eichu brought green tea to Japan for the first time. Just as in China, tea drinking started off as part of Buddhist practice, but gradually spread beyond it. By the 1400s, tea culture was very much a part of wider Japanese culture. The samurai, by the by, were the vanguard of this new cultural movement. After the samurai seized control of the government, there was always a bit of anxiety among the more educated members of the warrior class about their relative lack of sophistication and culture compared to the old aristocracy of Kyoto. Think about the ostentatious behavior associated with new money in American culture compared to the more refined old money families, and you'll get something of the idea. The diffusion of tea culture and high culture more generally into wider society was a process furthered by the Sengoku. As Central Order broke down, so too did the old status hierarchies which had dominated Japanese society. The Sengoku period saw old orders thrown into disarray, where one's class background used to matter quite a bit in terms of how far you could rise. In the chaos of the warring states, talent started to matter a lot more than the names on your genealogical charts. The best example is definitely Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who was famously born a peasant, started his career as Oda Nobunaga's sandal bearer, then became one of his warriors, then a general, and then master of Japan. Sen no Rikyu fits the mold as well, though. To get back to the narrative of his life, his parents arranged a top-level education for him, which in addition to the usual suspects of literature and history included exposure to a local tea master named Kitamuki Dolchin. Why his parents decided to expose him to the tea ceremony is unclear, but it's likely they felt that having some cultural background would make their son more attractive as the member of a court to a high-ranking noble or samurai. Apparently Rikyu impressed his new teacher, because Kitamuki eventually introduced him to a legend of the Japanese tea ceremony, a man named Takeno Jo'o, Takino Joō o was also a product of the somewhat confused social order of the Sengoku period. His family claimed descent from the samurai clan known as the Takeda, but Joo's os father decided to take up a career as a merchant in Sakai, selling goods to warriors rather than fighting with them. His son, too, broke away from family practice and made a name for himself in the cultural world. He took the vows of a Buddhist monk, became a celebrated poet, and eventually took up the tea ceremony. jo was an exponent of the cultural form known as wabi-sabi. This is a rather uniquely Japanese concept wherein simplicity and flaws are accepted as a natural part of the world and embraced as aesthetically valuable. In the world of the tea ceremony, this is reflected in practices such as the use of cups not formed into perfect circles, or a rustic tea house setting. Of course, rustic is should be understood in the same sense that, say, Marie Antoinette's countryside retreat in pre-revolutionary France was... rustic. These tea houses were very carefully manicured and upkept, and an actually rustic person would be able to spot how artificial they were right off the bat. Quote-unquote rustic fashions are pretty common throughout the history of high fashion. Generally speaking, the point is not actually identification with or glorification of the common people, but rather to offset oneself from the majority of the fashion conscious by means of a unique style. Wabi-sabi aesthetics, at least to my mind, should be thought of this way, an attempt to make the followers of the style look unique when compared for the elaborate and ornate mainstream tradition dominated by the grandeur of Chinese aesthetic ideas. Anyway, Takeno Joo, in addition to really setting Sen no Rikyu on the path of studying the tea ceremony, had two other effects on his young pupil. The first was to get him interested in this wabi-sabi aesthetic. The second was to get him interested in Buddhism. At some point after studying with Joel Sen no Rikyu began studying Zen at a Soto sect temple, and spent some time studying esoteric Buddhism in Kyoto. We know very little about this part of Sen no Rikyu's life. Aside from his pursuit of Buddhism, we know that he did get married in his 20s. He did take a monk's vows, but unlike Christian Catholic monks, Buddhist monks are not necessarily required to abstain from sex. Senno Rikyu continued to build up a reputation around the country as a tea master, but his real personal breakthrough did not come until he was 57, when he came, in 1579, to the attention of Oda Nobunaga. By way of a quick refresher, Nobunaga was a brilliant and ruthless warlord who, by 1579, was already well on his way to conquering all of Japan and reunifying it. By this point, he already controlled a good third of the country, and being by far the richest third, it seemed likely that the wealth and power he now controlled would propel him to the top. Part of his territory included Sakai, home and Sen no Rikyu. Nobunaga was actually something of an artistic dilettante. By all accounts, he enjoyed painting and theater, but his real passion was the tea ceremony. It's unclear whether this was an affectation designed to give him some cultural clout. After all, Nobunaga was very in need of a way to legitimize himself through something other than his prolific talent for violence, or a genuine appreciation of art. Likely, it was a little bit of both. At any rate... Sen no Rikyu was the top team master in his domains, so Nobunaga decided that Sen no Rikyu would be his team master. It's unclear what Rikyu himself thought of this, but likely it was something along the lines of "Sounds good to me, Mister Extremely Well Armed and Extremely Violent Warlord." Unfortunately, master and student would have but three brief years together. Nobunaga was assassinated in 1582. However, they were apparently three good years. One of Nobunaga's last acts before his death was to display his new tea vessels, selected by Rikyu, to his adoring lords, who I am sure were impressed for reasons that had nothing to do with the fact that criticizing him would likely have meant a sudden bout of decapitation. Fortunately for Rikyu, Nobunaga's follow-up act, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, was even more desperate to appear cultured and sophisticated than his predecessor had been. Hideyoshi was every inch of the commoner. He could not even fake a sophisticated pedigree like some lower-ranking samurai, and as a result he was always rather insecure about his position vis-a-vis his subordinates of better social background. This is, again, all a matter of interpretation as to what you believe actually motivated Hideyoshi's interest in the tea ceremony, either actual interest or an attempt to provide himself with an aura of sophistication. Likely, again, it was a bit of both. Either way, Rikyu flourished under Hideyoshi's patronage, possibly because they had so much in common. Both men were of humble backgrounds, but had risen in the world as a result of a considerable talent for fields normally reserved for the highest of the high. In the 1580s, Senno Rikyu was at the height of his career, and developed a massive level of influence in the world of the tea ceremony. This was the period in which his preference for wabi-sabi aesthetics in the tea ceremony became the dominant strain of tea ceremony practice. Rikyu is generally given credit for popularizing the idea of small, intimately designed tea houses, as well as the use of extremely simplistic implements in the tea ceremony. This is also the point at which he gets the name Rikyu. You see, the person we call Rikyu, like most Japanese before the Meiji period, had several names throughout his life one as a child, one as an adult, one as a Buddhist. To avoid confusion, I've been sticking to the one he's best known by, which he picked up in 1585. Hideyoshi, wanting to prove his cultural chops, arranged in 1585 to have a tea ceremony performed in the presence of the sitting emperor, Ogimachi. Rikyu's inclusion in the ceremony would be a necessity, since he was, after all, Hideyoshi's tea master. However, Rikyu's background and name marked him as a member of the lower social classes, and thus marked he could not appear before the emperor. Hideyoshi arranged to have his name changed, giving him the more aristocratic Buddhist name Rikyu, which means something like beneficent rest. Rikyu continued to be a feature of many of Hideyoshi's social gatherings, at which he entertained lords from throughout his master's new domains. By far the largest took place in the suburb of Kyoto in 1587, at which all of Hideyoshi's lords were required to show themselves. Rikyu's fortunes appeared to be, at this moment, at their zenith, and his popularity and influence appeared insurmountable. His cultural influence continued to spread. Though it was most prominent in the tea ceremony, Rikyu was also an accomplished poet, and a practitioner of ikebana, or flower arranging. However, just four years after his greatest performance, Senno Rikyu would be dead by the order of his patron. The why of it is uncertain. Hideyoshi was, as we've discussed, a bit unstable and egomaniacal, and toward the end of his life, he blasted clean over the line between unstable and full-on crazy. Quite a number of people, including hundreds of thousands of Koreans during his invasion, would end up on the receiving end of that crazy, as would Sennorikyu. We are not entirely sure why Hideyoshi turned on Riku so ferociously and suddenly, One popular story has him enraged by the fact that Rikyu had a statue of himself built next to the entrance of Momoyama Castle, Hideyoshi's headquarters. Thus, Hideyoshi would have to be looked down upon by Rikyu's statue while entering the castle, a state Hideyoshi could not brook. It's also possible that Rikyu may have criticized some of Hideyoshi's policies. Which policies these were are unclear, but my guess, and I would like to emphasize that this is a guess, is that it may have had something to do with Hideyoshi's reworking of Japan's social system. If you'll recall, Hideyoshi basically put a cap on social mobility once he had made it to the top. He hardened the distinction between social classes and disarmed all non-samurai. Rikyu, of course, got where he was by means of social mobility, enabled by the chaos of the Sengoku period. It's entirely possible he felt scandalized by Hideyoshi's abandonment of the very mechanism which had propelled both of them to the top. Again, just a guess. Whatever it was, in 1591 Hideyoshi had apparently had it with Rikyu. He ordered his tea master to commit suicide. Note that it's suicide rather than execution. Rikyu had been made into a member of the social elite by Hideyoshi, and even after their falling out, he still retained some cachet from that. As a result, he was allowed dignified suicide rather than execution, which is how you dispose of criminals in medieval Japan. Again, it's hard to be certain exactly how that went, but the official and much-loved story is that Rikyu had one final tea ceremony with his closest friends. After serving them, he offered up his tea implements from his own collection, wrote a death poem, and then killed himself. The death poem By the by, is one of those most Japanese of traditions that, of course, started first in China. It had fallen out of favor in China by this time, but remained common practice in Japan and Korea. Essentially, at the moment of one's death, usually by suicide, one expressed profound thoughts in an effort to live beyond the moment of death by means of said profundity. Riki's By the by was addressed to the Shoto, or short sword, with which he killed himself. Quote, Welcome to thee, O Sword of Eternity, through Buddha and through Daruma alike, thou hast cleft thy way. Though Rikyu was now dead, his lineage continued through his sons, who continued to teach his style of tea ceremony. There are currently three major schools of tea ceremony which carry on his legacy, all of which can trace themselves back to Rikyu through one of his sons. So, what can we make of the life and legacy of Sen no Rikyu? Well, on the one hand, he was a tremendous cultural figure. The tea ceremony is about as Japanese as it gets, and Rikyu is basically the most influential figure in the history of the tea ceremony there is. The wabi-sabi aesthetic also continues to dominate the tea ceremony to this day, and that can also be attributed to Rikyu. He's also a fascinating social figure, because of the mobility he embodies and the way in which his life mirrored that of his patron and indirect killer. The self-made nature of his career says a lot about the fundamentally unusual nature of Sengoku society, at least from a Japanese perspective. It was, to be sure, a terrible series of wars, but that kind of social mobility was unheard of in Japanese history until at least the Meiji Restoration in 1868, and arguably not even until the 1920s. Senoriki was an artistic genius, and his accomplishments are a testament to what happens when you take away artificial restrictions and let the brightest rise to the top. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. While I'm in China, you can reach me through my email at ijmeyer at uw.edu, or through the WordPress page. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we discuss that most Japanese of stories, The 47 Ronin.